From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To be a sheriff's deputy is to be on the front lines of a crisis, says Denver's new interim sheriff. Probably at any given day, 50% of our jail is inhabited by a population that has mental health alerts. Fran Gomez is the first woman to lead the department, which has struggled with inmate deaths, use of force, and sexual harassment. Then, an author who didn't think her book would see the light of day, now it's a finalist for a National Book Award. Short stories inspired by a Colorado childhood. When I was in eighth grade, I was forced to raise a bag of sugar as if it were a real baby. And I thought about that for a long time because it was just so ridiculous. Like, it couldn't prepare me for raising a real life. Plus, the Rose behind Rose Medical Center in Denver. He was a Jewish World War II veteran. They called him the Immaculate Killer of Nazis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She's the first woman to become Denver sheriff, an office that's seen a lot of turnover in recent years. And like her predecessors, Fran Gomez has a daunting task. Here's how it was recently described. These are difficult jobs. There's very few people in the world that have the talent to run a very complicated jail with all the medical needs and all the behavioral health needs are within a jail system. That was Denver's executive director of public safety, Troy Riggs, as Gomez's appointment was announced. She's interim sheriff, but we'll find out if she wants the job permanently. And Sheriff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. You've been in law enforcement for more than 30 years. You just heard Troy Riggs there. What makes you one of the few people, as he said, talented enough, capable enough of running a complex operation like this? Um, Well, I was very, very honored that he had that much faith in me. I have to say it was quite an honor to be asked to fill this role. He's heard some of my ideas. He knows that I'm a real people person. And certainly I have been involved in this career for approximately 30 years. So all in all, I guess it all combined for the perfect storm. And he just thought I would be at least the ideal candidate for the interim position. For the interim position. Well, let's unpack what you said there. So you know that you're a people person. And, you know, one thing we've heard is that Denver's deputies are hungry for leadership, but that the office has been unable to get it right, pointing out that your predecessor, Patrick Furman, for example, didn't have any experience running a big city sheriff's department, making it harder for him to gain the respect of the rank and file. How do you go about winning them over? Well, first of all, I think you have to care about them, which I do. Being a former deputy, I know how incredibly hard their job is. I'm making an effort to go out and meet everybody, if I possibly can, and let them know I may not be able to solve all their problems, but I'm more than willing to hear what they have to say and at least consider it. Did they seem surprised by that outreach? They've honestly seemed very grateful. I've gotten an incredibly warm welcome, and I'm hoping to extend that for as long as I possibly can. I'd love to talk about some of the complexities that we referenced earlier. The department has in recent years been involved in a number of controversies, including the death of inmates at the jail, as well as excessive force cases. Last month saw an inmate give birth in the jail without medical assistance, as well as the Denver City Council approving a $1.5 million settlement for 15 female sheriff's deputies who alleged they'd been sexually harassed. Uh, What was your reaction to the multitude of things happening in the department? Well, all those things you mentioned did happen over a several-year time frame, and One factor, at least, is that probably at any given day, 50% of our jail 
is inhabited by a population that has mental health alerts. So on top of the deputies having an incredibly hard job dealing with the incarcerated population, obviously people who aren't really happy to be here, it's a challenge for our, our department because they have to care for people who would probably be best be served in other locations, maybe treatment facilities. So we are working on many of those issues. We've instituted a crisis intervention training in our department. We're looking at trying to get them services inside the jail. We're trying to get them services as they leave the jail. Are you saying then that deputies were simply ill-equipped to deal with that and therefore dealt inappropriately with that? In other words, I asked you about the deputies. You responded about the inmates. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think the deputies have become more skilled over time with these additions of these critical areas. I worked here many years ago. We did not have 50% population with uh, mental health alerts. I don't think the deputies were ill-equipped. I think we just hadn't given them all the tools that they needed. What you've said is that deputies are responsible in some ways for being on the front line of a mental health crisis. Do you, as sheriff, have some role in advocating for changes to the deeper systems so that they are no longer the front lines? Yeah, that's a great point. I think that it uh, definitely is a result of budget cuts over the years, but we have to figure out a way to reintegrate people back into society successfully. And when we let them leave the facility and they don't have any sort of a security net, um, we're not doing them any good. We have just gotten a grant for someone to come in and work off hours and weekends to provide uh, resources to people who leave, who have nowhere to go, who have no support system, no family, um, potentially mental health concerns. To find housing, to find therapy. Exactly. Probably housing, probably short-term housing. I mentioned that settlement for the sheriff's deputies who'd alleged they'd been sexually harassed. Did that surprise you? Is the culture such that you think that kind of thing can fly? What, what do you think? You know, I have not been privy to the information in that case yet. I do have a meeting with the city attorneys coming up uh, later this week. So I probably know about as much as you do about that. I will say one thing. Oh, I, I suspect that as, as a woman who has been in the department for a long time, that there's something about the culture you could reflect on that I certainly couldn't. Well, and, and I'm hoping the mere fact that they have a woman in this position gives the women of the department um, at least the understanding that I know some of the things they've experienced. I'm, my door's open, and we certainly won't tolerate any disrespect to men or women within the department. I expect um, there to be a high level of regard for everybody who works here. Has it been difficult to be a woman in law enforcement? You know, it has not. It's uh, had its challenges over the years, but it's been an amazingly wonderful career, and I'm incredibly happy I found my way into it. What are the challenges? Uh, I would say some of the challenges probably came when I was on the street many years ago, and you would uh, respond to a call, and the people would look at you like you came from Mars and ask for the real police officers who were the male police officers because they didn't think women could do the job. But Uh, Many instances in which we did the job, we just went about it in a totally different way. One suggestion from Denver City Councilwoman Candy Sidabaka is to make the Denver sheriff an elected position as opposed to a mayoral appointment. Uh, Do you think she's right? Um, I prefer not to get involved in that because I feel like uh, my comments might (laughs) seem a little self-serving. I will say this, that whether you have an elected sheriff or an appointed sheriff, 
the issues and concerns of the jail will remain the same. So, um, you know, honestly, I don't have strong opinions about it either way. Do you want this job in the long run? Would you like to have interim removed and just be sheriff of Denver? I think it definitely might be something to consider. Something to consider. All right. Sheriff, thanks uh, very much for being with us. Thank you so much for your questions. Fran Gomez was named last week as the interim Denver sheriff, becoming the first woman to lead the department. She never thought it would be published, and now it's up for a National Book Award. Sabrina and Karina is a literary debut for Denver author Kali Fajardo-Anstein. It's a collection of short stories, many inspired by her family's migration from southern Colorado to Denver in search of opportunity. And in light of the National Book Award nod, let's listen back to our conversation from April. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Each of these fictional stories centers around a different family. Why don't you start by telling us about your family and its roots? Sure, I'd love to. So my family's been in Colorado for more generations than I can count and more generations than we can trace because the records just simply disappear at a certain point. But in the 1920s and 30s, my family members migrated north from southern Colorado, and they settled in Denver because of their hopes for owning property, for working, for having better life experiences. That was just less possible in southern Colorado. Yeah, there wasn't as much going on, but also... um, They came from a family of eight children, and their father had abandoned them. And so the women had to come up to make their own way in Denver. How does this inform your sense of Denver today? Like, I wonder how often you think about those roots as you move about the city. Every day, every day of my life, I think about the fact that my great-grandmother's house is, you know, it's in five points. I walk by it. Sometimes I see it. I have a great-great-auntie whose home was on the west side, and sometimes I go down Galapago Street and I look at that house, too. And I think about how the city's changed so much, but underneath those layers of change, my family has just always been here. This is our heartbeat. This is where we're from. Have you ever contemplated leaving, or have you ever left? For any- I Yes, I've left quite a bit. Um, I, I've sort of come back. I'm like a prodigal daughter of sorts. Okay. Um, I, I, so after I graduated from Metropolitan State University of Denver, I left for San Diego for one year, and I experienced extreme homesickness. And I, I came back, and I went to Wyoming, and then I was in South Carolina, and Key West, Florida, and Durango, Colorado. I've, I've lived all over. But when my writing really started to take off for me, it's when I came back home to Denver, and I really just started grinding it out and writing these books. I hear so often the advice to writers, write about what you know. So I wonder if coming back to the place that you know probably better than anyone or else, if that had some effect on your writing. I think in some ways going away helped strengthen my worldview about the place that I had come from. It helped me see some of the ugly side of Denver that I wasn't aware of before. Um, We have a legacy of segregation. We have a city that is very divided in some ways. And it wasn't until I had lived in the South that I started to notice that in my own place. Yeah, I mean, the history of redlining in Denver, where people and who those people were who could buy property. Yeah, definitely. For instance, Uh, the first story... In your collection, Kali, the collection is called Sabrina and Karina. We're talking about these short stories. The first is called Sugar Babies. It's set in southern Colorado. It's about parenthood. There's also a real innocence to it. Tell us what a sugar baby is and why you started the book this way. 
Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was forced to raise a bag of sugar as if it were a real baby. And I thought about that for a long time because it was just so ridiculous. Like it couldn't <laughs> prepare me for raising a real life. And when I was in graduate school at the University of Wyoming, I went to an art talk one day and there was a man there and he was just talking about an archaeological dig site in his small town. And suddenly I had this whole image of a town in southern Colorado and I, I ran home to my apartment and I started furiously writing and there was this central image of the sugar baby and the sugar baby showed up and because of that I was able to create this whole plot around Sierra Cordova and her partner Robbie Martinez and they have to raise this little sugar baby as their whole town has been uplifted by this archaeological dig site from a Native American burial ground at the edge of town. Yeah, it strikes me that there were layers of generations in this story. So the sugar baby represents the innocence maybe of a new generation. Uh, meanwhile, you have ancestors essentially being dug out of the ground. Yeah, and I think there's another there's another generational uh, link to these stories, too, is that Sierra's been abandoned by her own mother. And so she's trying to figure out how to become a mother with this inanimate object. But at the same time, she's thinking about the fact that her ancestors are beneath her feet and they're beneath Robbie's feet. And there's great grandparents and grandparents all around them just trying to tell them how to be good people and how to raise this child that's not even real. Did you have a good relationship with your mom? I had a, a good relationship with my mom and I also a complicated relationship with my own mother. Um, she's everywhere in this book. You know, she's all over these stories. My mother is an incredible woman. And I think because of our mirrored interest in our history and our heritage, sometimes we butted heads. Um, but now, later in life, I can see that everything I have is because of my mother. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the Colorado author Kali Fajardo-Anstein, whose new collection of short stories is called Sabrina and Karina. And I am just haunted by the titular story. Uh, a warning to listeners, it contains some violence that I'm going to explain. Sabrina and Karina are cousins who grew up together in North Denver, then drifted apart. Corina, if I have this right, is a makeup artist at Macy's, and she gets a call at work one day. Sabrina has been strangled to death, and it will be Corina's job to hide the strangulation marks on her body with makeup. It made me wonder if you're ever haunted by your own work. That's a really interesting question and a question I haven't been asked before. And yeah, the answer is yes, I am. Sometimes when I write these stories that have to face violence head on because violence is something that's impacted women in my community, um, I can't get their voices out of my mind. I'll go and I'll try to take a shower and they're still talking to me and they still want me to tell their stories. So yeah, I am haunted by them. And, you know, just to do the research for Sabrina and Karina, I had to do a lot of I had to look up morgues. I had to look up bodies. I had to do a lot of things that I was very uncomfortable with, but I wanted to tell this story with authenticity and truth, and I wanted to honor these characters, especially women who are murdered and their cases go unsolved. And these are direct ex experiences you've had with people in your community. These stories grow out of the violence you've seen in, in parts of Denver. You know, violence that I've seen in my own life and my extended family, people I grew up with. Um, but also, I started doing historical research of cold cases of murdered women in Denver. And I was specifically looking for Chicanas. And so I was looking at any woman who had a Hispanic surname. And I was just appalled at what I was finding. Uh, there was one case in particular of a, a woman who came from Iowa and she wanted to be an actress in the 1950s. I was reading that they never found her body, but they found a black dog who had her 
hand in its mouth. You know, things like that really haunt me. And I want to honor these women and make sure that their lives are not forgotten. A lot of your protagonists have foils, another character who acts as a contrast. How are Sabrina and Corina, these two cousins, how are they different yeah, I think that's interesting because some people ask me, which, which one are you more like? Are you more Sabrina or are you more Karina? And I, I, you know, I never have an answer to that because to me, they both represent two sides of the same coin. It's sort of like the dark double. There's this twinning within them. Sabrina is, she's very impulsive. She's wild. She's an alcoholic that goes out and she has this fun, vivid life. And Karina's very closed off and she's working at Macy's and she's covering other women up with makeup all the time, which is in a way she's covering up her own personality because she's trying to hide who she truly is. And that thread of duality runs throughout the entire collection of short stories. Several stories poke fun at the term Highlands to, (laughs) to describe a Denver neighborhood on the north side of town. Uh, Help us understand why Highlands is a loaded term for folks in the city, some folks. I, you know, it's just so funny because I grew up, uh, like I was at 35th and Newton for a while when I was growing up. And then I worked at Westside Books at 32nd and Lowell for a long time. And it was just, we never called it the Highlands. That was something that came about later. We called it the North Side. And what ends up happening when you change the name of the place, you sort of are gutting the identity of the people who are already there and have been calling it something for a very long time. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, I have jokes in here because it's, gentrification is a very sad, serious, topic, but also sometimes it's just hilarious, some of the things that happen. (laughs) We mentioned this migration of your family from southern Colorado to Denver. I understand you're working on a novel inspired by the first member of your family to relocate. Uh, This is your great-grand-aunt. Yeah, yeah. So the first woman in my family to leave, in my novel, her name is Maria Josie, uh, but she had gotten pregnant. She was not married. And basically the family said, we don't, you know, we don't want you around anymore. And so she said, okay, I'm going to go to Denver where there's work and I can make my own way with my baby. And she started walking in the 1920s and she hitchhiked along the way. Um, But when she got to Denver, she was fully able to express her true sexuality. She was a lesbian. She joined Dykes on Bikes later on. Um, She worked as a car mechanic. She carried trash. I mean, she did all these things that women were not supposed to be doing or were told they could not do. And she became the matriarch of the family and really took care of all the other siblings that came up in her wake. Thanks for sharing your family stories and your short stories with us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Denver author Kali Fajardo-Anstein speaking with me in April. Her debut book is a collection of short stories titled Sabrina and Karina. It's now a finalist for a National Book Award. They'll announce a winner November 20th. And we'll be right back with The Immaculate Killer of Nazis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 33 states have signed on to this grand experiment in public health called medical marijuana something pharmacies can't carry and doctors can't talk to their patients about. So it ends up looking a lot like any other retail business. But here's the rub. There's not a lot of money to be made on medical marijuana anymore. So where does that leave patients who are on the medical marijuana registry? Find out on the season finale of On Something wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He was the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the U.S. Army during World War II. Anti-Semitism didn't stop Major General Maurice Rose, a high school dropout, and a name you may recognize, Rose 
as in Denver's Rose Medical Center, which was established 70 years ago now. Maurice Rose was killed in the final weeks of the war. He'd led the 3rd Armored Division, known as Spearhead, says author and historian Marshall Fogel. Spearhead meaning the tip of the spear, and they are the first into battle. The first into battle, and what does that mean in terms of how they're equipped and what they faced? They're equipped with uh, tanks, artillery. If you stretch the 3rd Armored Division, which is known as a heavy armored division, in one straight line, it would go for 10 miles. Oh, my goodness. So it's sizable and it's armored. Yes, there's only two heavy armored divisions in World War II in Europe, the 3rd and the 2nd. Being assigned to being the, the head of the 3rd Armored Division was the most prestigious award given to a soldier. Eisenhower was looking for a fighter, just like Lincoln was looking for Grant. And Eisenhower found the best field commander in the war, General Maurice Rose. Who was essentially then a tank commander. How did he do that differently from others? He fought from the front. The men respected him. He always dressed in a cavalry outfit. He was immaculate. So they called him the immaculate killer of Nazis. He was relentless in pursuing the enemy. And the men respected him because he took the same risks as they did in war. That was unusual, to have someone so high-ranking be that far forward. One soldier reported to me when he first saw General Rose coming into battle, he said, I thought Caesar was riding six in a chariot with six white horses. They loved him. They donated $35,000 to build Rose Hospital, the men of the 3rd Armored Division, after Rose was killed. He led many wartime assaults, the Battle of Carrington in France. That was really a turning point for him, wasn't it? Carrington was between Omaha and Utah Beach. It was... uh, captured from the Germans by the Airborne Division, who was trapped. Rose led his soldiers into Carrington, stopped the counterattack. German papers later said that had Rose not taken Carrington, they could have rolled up Normandy. Secondly, Rose broke the defenses of the 7th Army, saved Patton's supply lines, and that's when Eisenhower said, we found our grant. We got the, the right guy, the best field commander in the war. What was the mission that he was killed on? Rose was killed leading his troops into battle to capture Paderborn, Germany. He drove his forces 100 miles in a 24-hour period, which is a record that stands to this day to surround the pocket where the Ruhr Industries was located and 325,000 Nazis in March 30th, 1945. Rose wasn't a West Point graduate. How did his military career take shape? He's truly an inspiration And any educator that reads this book ought to tell his students or her students how you can make it in life. Rose dropped out of East Denver High School. He never graduated high school, ran away from home, joined the military. His mother had to go get him. And then finally, at the age of 17, his parents, uh, Rabbi Rose and his mother, allowed him to go to war. He was wounded in France, left the army, and went back. Rose was a handsome man, six foot three. I don't know if I, the book would have sold if he didn't look like Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photo of him on the cover. Uh, yes, and so to make the long story short, he went to war colleges nine years out of the 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and he became a star pupil. He learned how to fight. He learned how to win a war. He learned how to win over uh, the people that he commanded, and he was a darling of, of the generals that saw him. He never went to West Point. 
And that right. that's amazing that he, he just uh, learned how to fight. What was it like for Jews in the military during Rose's time? It was as bad as you could imagine. The 1920s, we had Henry Ford, a rabid anti-Semite, George Patton, a rabid anti-Semite, Father Coughlin, the Ku Klux Klan. Anti-Semitism was rampant. And in 1918, the uh, government formed the Secret Military Intelligence Division, which uh, wasn't made declassified until the 70s, keeping Aryans in the service and keeping Jews and other minorities out. They taught social Darwinism. Rose had to overcome. Boy, did he have to overcome. Uh, He kept it underneath. His personal goal was to be a great soldier, but he, he... he was a, a nominal Jew. He wasn't a practicing Jew, though he was a bar mitzvah early in life. He spoke Yiddish, uh, knew the Torah, knew the five books of Moses. Well, I think what's also fascinating about this time is that in, in World War II, you obviously have the U.S. fighting rampant anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism. And yet, as a Jew in the armed forces, he's both fighting Nazis, but also fighting anti-Semitism, I guess, within his own country, his own ranks, though though in a different form. It's almost as God gave you the answer. The first soldier to move into Germany in World War II to break the German border, capture the first German town, shoot down a German airplane, was the Jewish general Maurice Rose. How biblical is that? How biblical is that? (laughs) Denver's Jewish community chose to honor him by naming the hospital after him. And I think you said that his fellow soldiers rallied to help make that happen. Why was it decided that this should be the route to honor him? Because he was, first of all, he's the first real Jewish national hero. His death was so bereaved by General Marshall Eisenhower, the president of the United States. All the newspapers reported it. And they felt that naming it in honor of a Jewish war hero would grant the hospital national publicity to raise money to build this hospital, which is the first to allow a black doctor on the staff. So there's a legacy here that's important to our Colorado community. Do you remember what year that was? Yes. Uh, after they built the hospital, uh, there was a black leader named Sonny Lawson in Five Points, Denver, that brought Dr. Edmund Knoll to Denver, and the hospital waived the privilege of having to be honored by Denver Medical Society. You had to get in that first. Blacks were not allowed. Huh. Rose Hospital waived it. Edmund Knoll became the first black doctor, and his wife, Rachel, was the first elected official in Colorado to be elected to office on the school board in Denver in 1965. 1965. And when when did he become doctor? Uh, he was a doctor in the war, Dr. Knoll, and at about 1948, when the hospital Open, Edward Knoll was the first black doctor on the staff at any <laughs> hospital in Denver. Not everyone in the Denver Jewish community agreed with naming the hospital for Rose, I understand, because there were some who believed he'd converted to Christianity. Can cr- you, will you clear that up for us? Yes. There was a concern because there, first there was a cross on the grave in Germany, and then two Jewish chaplains went out, pulled the cross up, put down a Star of David. Then he, uh, Rose goes to Montgrat in the Netherlands, and he's going to be buried as a Jew, but his wife 
who was Episcopalian, was treated very poorly by the Denver community. And at one point she said, I want him in Arlington with a cross on his grave. Ultimately, the answer is Rose never converted. Marshall, thanks for sharing this story with us. I won't drive by Rose Hospital the same way again. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Marshall Fogel wrote Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. Rose Medical Center celebrates its 70th anniversary this year. Ahead of Halloween, let's contemplate life during the zombie apocalypse. What might a marriage proposal sound like in those circumstances? CSU Pueblo English professor Juan Morales answers that in his poem, The Long Engagement. Will you shoot bottles with me on weekends shortly after the first reports of attacks? Will you grimace next to me when the television signals black out from the dropped warheads glistening on metropolises? Do you promise to huddle next to the radio with me until we lose all voices to static? Will you dig the fallout shelter we are not meant to finish, share weary smiles, and brush ash from my hair too? I will walk beside you on the rubbled streets and overstomped fields, resist picking the only flowers left for you, kill whatever's edible in times of rationing and scavenging and sleeplessness and dehydration and fever and epidemic for as long as we are both human. Let us be happy, adding broken electronics and blunt tools to the ready kits. Promise, even if you don't believe in God anymore, we will finally have quality time together with our respirators, and we will dance into a life of running hand in hand through the charred aftermath, counting our bullets in our blessings, one by one. The Long Engagement, from a collection called The Handyman's Guide to the End Times, by CSU Pueblo professor Juan J. Morales. He just won the International Latino Book Award for Best Poetry. So what are you going as for Halloween? I'm going to be Liz Lemon. It's a bit of a dated reference from 30 Rock, but what do you know? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.